The Roman emperor Diocletian was one of the most evil Roman emperors uh, and has a, was a staunch enemy of Jesus and the church. He was responsible for the horrendous persecution in the late 3rd and early 4th centuries. And he expanded the Roman Empire into Spain where he built a monument to himself. Uh, note to self, if you have to build a monument to yourself, you're not all that great. He built a monument to himself, and this was the inscription that was placed there. Diocletian, Jovian, Maximian, Herculeus, Caesareus, Augusti. Got a lot of names, too. If you need that many names, there might be a problem. And then it continues. For having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ, and for having extended the worship of the Roman and Greek gods. In case you were wondering, Diocletian is now dead. And the Roman Empire is long gone. But the gospel of Jesus Christ continues to be preached throughout the whole world. And while the number of American Christians is indeed shrinking, because of the rapid growth of Christianity in Asia, in South America, in Africa, and even in the Middle East, The percentage of Christians worldwide has literally not shrunk over the last 120 years. It remains about 32% of the world's population. And Diocletian is long gone. Throughout history, nations and leaders have set themselves up against God. As David put it in Psalm 2, set themselves up against God and his anointed. But God has continually sent his prophets, his messengers, his people, like Jeremiah, to speak to them, to address them. Of course, Jeremiah was called to speak to his own people. We've been looking at that for the last number of months. But he was also appointed specifically as a prophet to the nations, those that were not his own. Those that did not belong to his tribe, to his nation, to his faith. He was called to speak to them too, rejecting ethnocentricity like Jonah the prophet did with Nineveh. This is what God did, Jeremiah 46 and verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations. In the next six chapters of Jeremiah, 46 through 51, Jeremiah addresses 10 different nations that cover roughly 100 million square miles. And all of them had set themselves up against God. Egypt, Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Kedar, Hazor, Elam, Babylon. Philip Reichen calls it an international roll call of God's ancient enemies. It was the united, well, they weren't united. It was the national impact of the day of Jeremiah. And God orders them around like he's in charge. How dare him? By the way, God 
is in charge. He is the God of the whole earth. All the nations will bow before him. Like Bob Mumford said once, God doesn't get nervous about his opponents. He just outlives them. They're pawns in his hand. They're allowed nothing that God does not allow. Leading this way and understanding it was one of the Jewish exiles. We know him as the man named Daniel, also a prophet. One who was in Babylon, who sought the welfare of the city. And God used him tremendously. And this is what Daniel said with respect to all the kingdoms of the world. The Most High rules over them. The Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world. He gives them to anyone he chooses. And then he adds, even to the lowliest of people. God's claim on the earth is not for a certain season or for a certain people or for a certain generation. It is forever. He started it and he will end it. He created it and he will culminate it into a new kingdom where his son is sitting on the throne and we are gathered around that throne worshiping God and the lamb who sits there. And this promise is something we hang on to. God is the God of the whole earth. It's all started, well, it started before this, but certainly in the Bible with a man named Abram who became Abraham. In Genesis 12, 2, God said, I will make you, Abram, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. It's one of my favorite scriptures. God blesses us that we might be a blessing. It never should end with us. It always is designed to be passed on to another. And then he continues, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families, all the people groups, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God is taking stake of what belongs to him early on in the Bible. David, king of Israel, understood this, that God was preeminent. He wrote this, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Isaiah had much to say about God's ruler, ruling over the earth like this in Isaiah 52. The Lord has bared his holy arm. Before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. All the nations. All. Habakkuk, an Old Testament prophet, also said this. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And Jesus himself made clear his authority over all nations when he said many things, but including this, and this gospel of my kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And the Apostle John, in describing what his vision was given about how things would all be wrapped up, said, 
After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God seems to think he's in charge. And he is. God is over all the peoples, all the tribes, all the languages, all the nations of the earth. And we're moving closer to the day when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will do it willingly if they have received him. Or they will be unwillingly forced to do it and then suffer persecution, damnation, and separation from God. As the song says that we taught to children, he's got the whole world in his hands. He holds it all together. It's his world, and he rules it as he sees fit. So, when it comes to this one we've been looking at, Jeremiah the prophet, we know God appointed him a prophet to the nations because God is the God of the nations. He's appointing him to that which he owns. He's not taking him outside of his scope of authority and his rule and reign. When he says to Jeremiah, you're appointed to the nations, he meant it. Now, there's no indication that we know of that Jeremiah ever traveled outside of Judah except for when he was taken against his will and being kidnapped into Egypt, though he had prophesied to them to not go, that they would suffer great hardship and destruction if they chose to do that. And they did, and they did. But other than that trip into Egypt for Jeremiah, we don't know that he ever traveled to any of these nations. How was he to be a prophet to the nations? Well, He would fulfill his call by writing 10 oracles in these six chapters of Jeremiah. Prophecies, declarations, speaking to them the word of the Lord. The Lord's word is central to everything that the Lord does. His word spoken, the word of God, is what calls us up when we're not doing right It's what sets the standard so that we know how to live. It's the lamp to our feet. It is the light to our path. God's word is essential. In fact, it is so essential that Jesus himself is called the word of God, become flesh. And so that when you would look at Jesus, you would actually be seeing a visualization of the very word, the spoken word of God. These writings, these oracles to these ten nations, these nations set up against the knowledge of God, they were words from God, and they are some of the finest poetry, according to certain scholars, that you'll find in the Bible. I love it that Jeremiah didn't just give the the leftovers to these words. He kept some of his finest work, and it displayed tremendous intimate knowledge for each nation 
it, it spoke to their culture and it spoke to their geography and it referenced certain specifics that only someone from that region would understand. When you read through it, there is so much pointedness to that specific nation. Jeremiah's message to these nations was virtually the same message that he preached to his own people. And it could be summarized this way. A warning of judgment that anticipates salvation. All of Jeremiah's words were this thrust. A warning of judgment that anticipates salvation. Thank God that it didn't just end with judgment. It wasn't just warning judgment. It was a warning of judgment that anticipates God's salvation. Like, for example, with Egypt. And I'm going to do a lot of scriptures, as you can see, so you'll have to just follow along the best you can. In Egypt, God says through Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 46, 19, prepare yourselves baggage for exile, O inhabitants of Egypt. Pack your bags, is what he's saying. Get ready. For Memphis shall become a waste, a ruin without inhabitant. That's not Memphis, Tennessee. That was a city in Egypt. Just making sure you know. Somebody thought Elvis was going to show up here in just a minute. Verse 26 says, I will deliver them, Egypt, into the hand of those who seek their life, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his officers. A warning of judgment to Egypt. And so much more. I've just picked out a few verses. But here's the amazing thing is that there is anticipated salvation in the very last line of what God has to say to Egypt. Down in verse 26, the second part. Afterward, Egypt shall be inhabited as in the days of old, declares the Lord. A promise of salvation, even as God is judging them. And to Moab, he says in Jeremiah 48, 16, the calamity of Moab is near at hand. And his affliction hastens swiftly. Grieve for him, all you who are around him and all who know his name. Say how the mighty scepter is broken, the glorious staff. Definite judgment. God's going to deal with them. But he also promises us in the very last line to them in verse 47. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. There it is, promise of salvation, to summarize or to sum up the, all the judgment that's being spoken against them. It happens more to the Ammonites, God says in Jeremiah 49, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will cause the battle cry to be heard against Rabbah of the Ammonites. It shall become a desolate mound, and its villages shall be burned with fire. Then Israel shall dispossess those who dispossessed him, says the Lord. Judgment to Ammon. But salvation in verse 6. But afterward, I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites, declares the Lord. Are you getting a trend here? Do you see the, the thread that's being woven through all of these oracles of judgment, this 
prophet of God to the nations, is speaking. There's one more, Elam. Verse 35 of Jeremiah 49. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the mainstay of their might. And I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four quarters of heaven, and I will scatter them to all those winds. Judgment. But in the latter days, verse 39, I will restore the fortunes of Elam, declares the Lord. It's true that Jeremiah's writing is mostly judgment for these nations. It was for Judah also. But these four singular verses are promises that give us perspective about what this judgment was meant to produce. Not all ten nations are offered such hope of salvation. But then again, not all of Jeremiah's messages to Judah were either. Eugene Peterson writes, The fact that they are there at all shows that judgment is in the service of salvation. The salvation of the nations as well as of Israel. There is not one message for the insider and another for the outsider. The biblical message is the same for the Jew and the Gentile. Paul understood this to be true. That's why he wrote to the Roman church. I love the way the message puts it. It's not a true translation. It's more of a transliteration. I hope that you'll indulge me to let, to, let me read it out of there. I think it puts it in a, a nice way for us to get the concepts. Verse 9 of Romans 3, so where does that put us, he says? Do we Jews get a better break than the others? Remember, Paul's a Jew. He's speaking to a lot of people who are not Jews. Not really, Paul says. Basically, all of us, whether insiders or outsiders, start out in identical conditions, which is to say that we all start out as sinners. This is a reality. And it is why that Jesus coming to die for our sins is the best news you'll ever hear. Because none of us stand a chance of earning our salvation with God. Not those that had the revelation or those that were left outside the camp. We're all sinners in the same boat, needing the same grace and the same Savior that is Jesus Christ. He took our judgment in order to give us his salvation. Paul goes on to describe it, and again, I love the way the message describes it in verse 21 through 24. But in our time, something new has been added. What Moses and the prophets witnessed to all those years has happened. The God setting things right that we read about has become Jesus setting things right for us. And not only for us, but for everyone who believes in him. For there is no difference between us and them and this. Since we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners, both us and them, and, and prove that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us, 
God did it for us. Praise God. Out of sheer generosity, he put us in right standing with himself. A pure gift. He got us out of this mess we're in and restored us to where he always wanted us to be. And he did it by means of Jesus Christ. God's judgment always has a purpose. It's to lead to salvation. Such a glorious salvation. We need to realize that everything we face in this life as his children is working on us for our salvation. It's always been that way for Israel, for Judah, for all the nations of the earth, and for each of us reading these verses today, the opposition and even the discipline and judgment we may be facing because of our, our, our missteps and our misguided ways and our missing the mark and our not living up to it, it is designed to bring us to a place of being saved. It's not punitive in nature simply. It is designed to produce salvation in us where there is hope that is everlasting. God will judge us even as his children. I call it discipline. He will discipline those he loves. He will hem us in. He will discipline us when we go astray. He will call us out for our hard hearts and our stiff necks. He will not let us go to our own destruction any more than you'd let your child run out in the street potentially being run over. God will come after you, but it's designed that you might be saved. He does that so that we can be saved, so that he can replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh and that he can write his law on our hearts and that he can put his new covenant within us and that we can be his children, able to ascertain his will because it is Christ in us, the hope of all glory. Our difficulties, our sufferings, even the messes we make for ourselves, they are shaping us. They are warning us, rebuking us, even judging us on a small scale, not to the place of hopelessness, but as a means of salvation. This is the heart of God. And when I see it, how he did it for these nations who resisted him and offered that one sentence of hope, it helps me understand the heart of God is to offer each of us hope. We can reject his dealings to our own destruction. We can say to him, we don't need that. We have it made. We can do it on our own. We don't need your grace. We don't need your salvation. We'll handle it. We can do that, and it will not end well for us. But to all those who accept him, to those who receive him as their king, he gives them the right to be called children of God so that the earth will be filled with the knowledge 
of the glory of the Lord. Surely as the waters cover the sea. I close with this scripture from Jeremiah 3.22. God spoke it earlier. Listen to it as if he's speaking it to you. Return, O faithless sons. I will heal your faithlessness. To which God longs to hear us say, Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Amen.